And as we kind of continue in our SWAT series, I should probably tell you as a heads up that Gloucester County is under quarantine again. And before you're stopping and you're like, wait a second, is there some COVID thing I didn't know about? No, you didn't miss any announcement. You didn't, and I could see panic on your face for a second. Uh, according to NewJersey.gov, right now, along with almost every other county in New Jersey, we are under attack from a vicious enemy who is multiplying, devouring, and destroying our beautiful state. You might know this enemy well. You know this enemy, don't you? This is the spotted lantern fly. And not only are they everywhere, these little buggers are destructive, aren't they? The spotted, spotted lantern fly, it, it has this um, really long, like piercing, sucking mouth part to it. And you see that? Isn't that great? Yeah, I know. You don't want to, like, yeah, it just looks demonic, doesn't it? These things are of the devil. And, and here's what these things do. They take that, that, that mouth sucky thingy and they come in and they feed off the sap of like 70 different types of trees in addition to eating everything that we grow here. And if you're out there um, and you're watching us online and you're not in the New Jersey area, you don't know what this is, but just pray the attack does not come your way. And so we're under quarantine to make sure that if these things are on us in one county, you don't go to another with them. Get rid of them. But has anybody tried to kill them before? Okay, good. All of you. Every hand should be up. We are instructed by our state to kill them. Isn't it great when you go to step on it? What does it do? And it hops to somewhere else. And if you're in a crowded place and you hear a scream, you know where it went because they land and they stay on you and it's the worst. And if you kill one, why is it that like 10 all of a sudden appear? They multiply. At no point in our state did we invite the lanternfly in, did we? At no point did we hang a sign outside saying, there's free food to lure these bugs in. The only thing that was necessary for them after some one person probably brought them in was to create the conditions to attract the enemy. The temperatures are right. The diversity of our agriculture, I will say as someone who has lived all throughout New Jersey, the best produce in the country is down here in South Jersey. This is a buffet, a feeding frenzy. And we have now invited the enemy to invade. And they have hatched. And they multiply and multiply and multiply. And I believe that the same exact thing is true when it comes to the spiritual world that we all live in. When it comes to the invasion and the attack of the enemy of our souls. For those of you who are here who have given your life to following Jesus Christ the Messiah. The Apostle Paul tells us that, and he's been teaching us, that we are constantly under attack by the enemy and by his demons. And believe me when I tell you, he is far more dangerous than a spotted lanternfly. He is far more dangerous than a spotted lanternfly because what he does is he probes for every single opportunity to invade our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages, our kids, our faith, our friendships. This is why we're going through our SWAT series. 
our spiritual warfare and tactics. This is why we're looking together at this amazing armor of God that the Apostle Paul writes about in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And this armor is something that we are, as believers in Jesus, supposed to put on to stand against this invasion. Because whether we would like to believe it or not, war is upon us. We are in the middle of a spiritual war. And when the enemy attacks us, I will tell you this, he, he really attacks in many ways, but two of the, the biggest ways are by invitation and by invasion. By invitation and invasion. We invite him often through the presence of sin. And when I say sin, I, I simply mean anything that does not line up with the life of Jesus and the commands that he gives us. Anything that falls outside, anything we think we say we do, this is what we could consider sin. And, and when we have this presence of sin in our lives, just like South Jersey produce to a lanternfly, unconfessed and habitual sin in our life is an invitation, and it's all the invitation that Satan needs to send his demons to our doorstep. Paul says often that, that the, the devil comes to invade and he comes to infest, to wreak havoc in our world all around us. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have this armor that we get to put on. So together, would you just read with me? We'll read from Ephesians chapter 6. And if it's in bold, I would love for you to um, read this out loud with me. Can we stand together? Can we stand together? It says, put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, let's just pause here and you can be seated. Uh, last week, we kind of unpacked as we kicked off our series with the belt of truth. Do you remember? This first piece of the Roman armor that they would put on, not a fashion accessory and something that looked good, but this was like a weightlifter's belt. And it had all sorts of straps and buckles that would be on it. And as they put this on, it was the core of everything else that they put on. It was a thick combat harness. And What's great is it holds up every other single piece of armor. The Bible continues to point us to a place where we know as followers of Jesus that our plumb line, our guide, our core is the word of God. It's, it's, it's these letters, these books, these accounts, these narratives, all for us to line up with the life of Jesus. And we know that, that we talked about last week how truth Truth is relative in our world. But the Word of God is an unchanging, capital T, truth. And that when, as followers of Christ, we submit our opinion to what God's opinion is on any topic, on any matter. And we, do you remember the word we used? Gird. We gird our loins with God's truth. And I, I'm not sure if Jeremy is here. Jeremy, are you here? Um, oh, you're over there. Hey, thanks for letting us gird your loins at Crossbridge. Um, and this idea of, right, restrictions get us ready to have more freedom. After buckling this belt of truth, 
Paul says that we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as you can see, um, this was like a metal shield that every Roman centurion would wear. It was made out of uh, bronze or nickel. Uh, Most of the time, they could weigh up to 70 pounds, 70 pounds. And during Paul's time, the typical Roman soldier wore this place, wore this breastplate from their neck down to their waist. And the goal of this piece of armor was to protect their vital organs. But specifically, more than anything else, it was to protect their heart. It was to protect their heart. You can get a slice on the leg and still recover, right? But if you take a direct hit to the heart in battle, there's no surviving. It's over immediately. So, so Paul says, listen, after you put on this belt as a soldier, the next thing that a centurion puts on is their armor. It's their breastplate. This is the second piece of the Christian arsenal the followers of Christ get to put on. And it represents what? what is the, it's the breastplate of? It's the breastplate of righteousness. This isn't a word we use regularly, is it? It's not something we we regularly bring into conversation. This is more of a church word. And um, so what is it? I like the definition by a great Bible teacher, Priscilla Shire. She says this, righteousness is upright living that aligns with God's expectations. Let me say that again. Righteousness is upright living that aligns with God's expectations. This is is the definition we're working off of today when it comes to righteousness. It is intentionally choosing a lifestyle that aligns with God's standards. It's it's being obedient to what we read about the life of Jesus and all the teachings throughout Scripture, and we hold ourselves to this and align ourselves to God's expectations that we find here. So why is righteousness important then? What's the point? Why, Why is righteousness like our armor? Well, basically, because unrighteousness, and that's not aligning with God's expectations, right? It's the presence of sin in our life. Unrighteousness, it's like having a ripe field for lanternflies. Unrighteousness is just asking for the enemy to invade our life. It's, it's those hidden thoughts that we hold on to and we let linger. It's what we think about others. It's how we sexualize others. It's cheating when we think we can get away with it. It's it's fudging the numbers just a little bit. It's the little white lies that aren't that big of a deal. The gossip that we have about coworkers, about our friends at school. As we look throughout the writings of all of these authors in this Bible that we have, all of those things would be considered unrighteousness. And it opens up the door for the enemy, invasion, and reproduction. See, can we just, I'll be honest for a second here. Is there anyone who would say, man, Pastor Jimmy, when I look at this, I line up completely. Based on what I've read, I nail this. I've got it all together. Okay. Is there anyone like me? That when you read through this, you go, I I feel like I'm anything but righteous, and I would claim complete unrighteousness. Anybody else? Some of you aren't raising your hands, which means either you're not listening, or you've never, ever looked at what uh, this amazing book has to say, 
or you're, you're like, just stop talking. Um, listen, we all live in a place where we, we live in perfect lives. We don't line up with what God's call for righteousness is. And, and this is why we need to put on the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And, and check this out. Paul says you put on the belt first, right? Remember, it's got hooks. It's got all the stuff to hold every other piece of armor. And after you've got this belt on, you put on this 70-pound piece of armor and clip it in. When you clip it in, the belt begins to hold the, the breastplate and take a majority of that weight off your shoulders so you're not completely carrying it right here. Let me say this again in a different way because I truly believe that there is someone here today that you need to hear this because your shoulders are exhausted. Your back hurts and the weight of life is heavy on you. When we start working on our spiritual core and we're tightening this belt and we are working out with the belt of truth and we basically lean on God's expectations, we learn what they are for us and we begin to work it out. And when we try to live and we begin to live a more righteous life, it will not be long until we learn these commands that God has and we realize how short we fall of God's expectations. We will see our unrighteousness. It will become clear to every single one of us. And when we are sitting there ourselves trying to live out a life of all of these commands, of all of these asks of loving God and loving people like we love ourselves, when we're trying to do this on our own power, and conform our heart to what God is. Are we pr protecting our heart? No, we're working so hard at trying to do this. The weight sits on us. And God's call to perfection, he says, you're not going to get there. So what I have done, even if your behavior is perfect on the outside, our hearts can still be a mess. And this is the place that the enemy wants to attack he wants to attack our hearts. So God says, listen, here's what I want. Would you build your core in your spiritual disciplines and learning about scripture? Build your core. And then here's what I want you to do. Don't just have that belt, but lock in the breastplate of righteousness. Put on my righteousness to protect your heart. The weight of righteousness is not on our shoulders. The weight of aligning to God's expectations that he's called us to. He says, would you, would you put that weight in my word, in what I say, because you shouldn't carry that weight. You were never designed to carry that weight. So God gives us his righteousness for protection in the battle over our soul. Does that make sense? Uh, let's see if we can unpack this a little more. You know, um, the soldiers knew one shot to the heart. And you're done, right? You're done. So it didn't matter how trained you were, how strong you were, you'd be gone in a moment. So if we want to survive, we have to learn to guard our hearts, right? We have to learn. Why? Because our hearts are the source of our life. I love the way that um, the, or not the apostle, uh, King Solomon, he's writing to his son in Proverbs, and this is what he writes in Proverbs 4. He says, above all else, what is the, those three words? Above all else, guard your heart. Why? 
for everything you do flows from it. What does Solomon mean when he says, guard your heart? Now, you may recognize this from our guardrail series that we did over the summer that we talked about how we need to guard our heart as everything we do flows from the inside to the outside. The original readers would not have thought just about the muscle that's pumping in their chest. That's not where their brain would have gone. They would have seen the way that this word is written in the Hebrew and understood that it was a bigger word talking about the completeness of a person, of their inner self, who, what, what it is that makes them up. In our 21st century language, we would probably say something, even though we wouldn't understand it completely, we would say something along the lines of, of, above all else, guard your soul, your soul, guard your soul, because the Bible unpacks that we are made up of many different parts, but four of the biggest parts that make us up, the distinct parts is our mind, right? We're made up of the thoughts and the ideas that go through our heads. They shape who we are. They shape how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us, how we see God. We're made up of our will. Our will is the ambitions, the desires, the, the, these things that drive you to do what you do. We're made up of our emotions. It's the feelings that we have, the good feelings, the tough feelings, they flood our lives and, and they constantly change based on where we are and the people we're with and the world around us. This is a part of who we are. And then lastly is our conscience. When we look at our conscience, this is the moral compass that kind of guides us. This is what determines in our minds what's right and what's wrong in any given moment. When the ancient writers speak of the heart, the soul, this, this is what they're referring to. They're looking at the intersection of all of these parts together, and this is the reason, when we look at this, that God says, I need to protect this, and I need to give you some armor to protect your heart, because your heart, please let me see your eyes on this. Your heart is what makes you you. All of these things put together makes you you, created in the image of God. This is worth protecting, amen? And in the cosmic spiritual battle that's going all around us, Paul is saying there is a battle, and this battle is over what? It's over your heart. It's over your heart. And on one side, we have a God who's saying, I want to do all I can to protect and to preserve all of who you are so that you would look like Christ for the sake of others. And on the other side of this battle, we have an enemy who is out to steal, to kill, to destroy, to shoot arrows at, at any little piece of our armor. And he's going after any area of our soul that he can go after. And if we don't pay attention and protect our hearts, when the enemy attacks, I believe if we are not protected, our hearts so quickly become numb to God. You know, in our soaping this month, and soaping, uh, when I say that this is the way that we read Scripture together daily, and we've been going through the letters of Paul um, to his young, young protege, Timothy, at his favorite church in Ephesus, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this, this sobering truth. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences 
have been seared as with hot iron. With unguarded hearts and souls, we will all fall to teachings from crooked hearts, and we will lean toward teachings that tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. And, and when this happens, the Apostle Paul says that, listen, there's a part of our heart, a part of our soul that begins to get seared as with a hot iron. Maybe, uh, there was a season in our home when our kids played with perler beads a lot. Does anybody know perler beads? Um, these horrible, horrific little beads that end up everywhere around your house. And, and here's what it is. You spend a lot of money on all of these different colors to build these beads and things. And, and what's kind of cool is you're supposed to organize them in such a way that when it's done, you take a little piece of parchment paper, you put it over, and then you take your iron and you, you evenly distribute this heat that takes the plastic and it begins to melt the sides together. And when they connect correctly and you've distributed the heat right, you get this really cool little um, plastic tchotchke is the word I'm going to use, right? You can make them into earrings, you can make them into magnets, you can make them into whatever you want. I hear, though, I mean, someone has said once that if you're in a rush and maybe you forget to put that parchment paper over and your iron is hot and you go to iron the beads, you, you, you get a bit of a jumbled mess. I mean, that's what I hear. I've, ne I've never seen or done anything like, like that. Uh, they become useless, right? It looks like nothing and now you've got more work to do. Paul says, listen, your heart, your heart is like perler beads that can so easily be seared. And when our consciences become dull and we reject the truth of God long enough, it will grow numb. It will be seared. We will no longer deter be able to determine the difference between right and wrong. Your heart grows this spiritual scar tissue over it. And we don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this moral conviction anymore. And things that we didn't used to compromise on now are very easy to compromise on in comparison to what God desires from us. And I mean, how many of us know someone whose conscience has been seared? I, 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 we've all lived the, in a place where we know someone who's lived the illusions, the lies for so long that now they don't even see it, that they make decisions in their life that seem so normal, and we go, how could you do this? What a horrific way to spend your life completely numb to the love and to the conviction of God and the people around you. To protect ourselves from this, God gives us armor to say you have to protect your heart, and he gives us his righteousness to put onto us and what does this look like at school or at home? What does this look like when you go to work tomorrow morning? Does this mean that when we put on the breastplate of righteousness that we just begin to behave better? Because that's what it kind of sounds like I'm saying a little bit, doesn't it? Like, oh, we need to do better things and do right things. Do I just need to act like Jesus? Do I need to try to become more righteous? No, absolutely not. That is not what this is about. This is not about coming up with some idea of what you think perfection looks like or those around you think perfection looks like in trying to meet man-made perfection, okay? We can't do that. Remember our definition for righteousness, right? 
aligning yourself to God's expectations. Aligning yourself to God's expectations. People who strive for man-made perfection typically wind up in one of two places. You end up with pride or despair. This is what it's going to lead to. It leads to pride because it's so easy for us to become smug, to become legalistic, to become self-righteous. We act like the teachers of the law who surrounded Jesus. Hey, you know what? I'm doing pretty good in comparison to the people around me. My conscience isn't as seared as theirs, and so we begin to elevate ourselves above others. This happens just as much today as it did around Jesus. This is what striving after man-made perfection gets us. And the other place is despair because, come on, if, if there's a level of perfection, we're not getting there. We all think the same thing. I blew it again. This is the same stupid thing I've been struggling with my entire life. When is this going to end? And we leave ourselves in a place where thinking, God, you're just so disappointed in me. You probably couldn't love someone this horrific, so why even bother trying anymore? I wonder if this is why people run away from religion. I, I really do. I wonder if it's because there's this unrealistic you know, list of do's and don'ts that we put in front of people that we never really find in the Bible, and they're thinking, I can't do this. this not only can I not do this, this isn't even fun. This does not look like a full life, like you say, happens when you start to follow Jesus. I, I'm out. I don't even want to try this. This is not the righteousness that Paul is talking about. If you think that God is simply chastising you and pushing you to be a better person, you have not understood the gospel of Jesus. Please, please, the world does not need another perfect person. The perfect one has already come, amen? Jesus Christ has lived the only perfect obedient life in human form, and he is the only one who has lived a 100% righteous life. He is the one that out of his love allowed Roman soldiers to nail him to a cross to die a death that you and I deserved. And he died on the cross to pay for our sins, but the enemy somehow likes to try to make us think that it's our job to pay for what he's already paid for. He likes to make us think that it's our job to behave better. So we turn our eyes from Jesus and we begin to stress out and we exhaust ourselves over trying to reach this stupid, unattainable goal of perfection and righteousness. You know, we cannot focus on our hearts if we're constantly worried about performing and protecting our heart from the enemy ourselves. This is too heavy a burden. You and I were not created to do this, so I'm begging you for the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake, stop trying to do this on your own. You cannot do it, and neither can I. And this is why we have been given the righteousness of Christ. You see, I look at the cross, and I think this is like the counterattack to Satan. When he's like, oh, I got him. It's over now. Jesus is dead. He's like, oh, you think, you think that this death is where it ends. This is where the war begins, my friend, because I win. I win. On that cruel Roman cross, Jesus Christ exchanged some, something, some major exchange happened in that moment between God, between us, and I like the way Paul explains it in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He says this, God made him and he's talking about Jesus here. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become, what's that say there? Listen, do you see this? When he was crucified for us, two transactions happened. One of them, as followers of Jesus, we talk about all the time. That, that our sin that deserves this payment, and the payment is death. Jesus paid the debt for our sin. We love to talk about this as followers of Jesus, don't we? That Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid for our sin. That we don't have to carry this anymore. But here's the problem. Church, I feel like we're, we're living only half the gospel truth. Yes, this is great news that he has taken our sin, that he has wiped us clean. But that's only half of it. Look at the other half. Look at what's been given to us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the first half, right? So that in him, in Christ, we might become what? The righteousness of God. When Jesus became our sin, something else happened that we became the righteousness of God. And I know there is someone here you're thinking, not me. Not me, Jimmy. My sin, a little too great. I know right now the enemy has been whispering in your ears and he has lied to you about the way that God sees you. I'm here to tell you today that you are not worthless, that you are not hopeless, and you are not all alone. Because of Jesus and your faith in him, you are a son, you are a daughter of the most high God. There's hope for your life. And he says, because of my righteousness, that you don't have to carry the weight, you build it on my truth. Because of this, you look different to the enemy. You look completely different. Not only is your sin forgiven, but you look like Jesus to them and to me. Is this not the great news of the gospel? This is an amen moment. Do you know that your sin is forgiven? Do you know that you look like Jesus to the Father and to the enemy? I wore my bow tie today because when I came, uh, as you were coming in, many of you were like, ooh, you look so fancy. You look so good. Like, uh, what's happening today? You look dressed up. Nothing. It's the same exact dysfunctional pastor you have in front of you who climbs in trailers. Nothing has changed, but somehow you perceive a change. Why? Because I look different. I'm not in my t-shirt and jeans. I look different. It's funny, we treat people different when they look different, don't they? Don't we? You know, the enemy has a much harder time attacking when you don't carry the weight of your own righteousness. But when he sees Jesus now, it's not the same attack. It's not the same war. And when we wear this chest plate. This allows our heart to be worked on because it's protected from the enemy, and this is why God gives us the Holy Spirit, the same exact spirit who lived in Jesus as he lived on this earth and walked in. We're like, oh, it's Jesus. He's perfect. No. He lived and he walked, and because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was empowered by the Spirit to live a perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he breathed on his resurrection. 
to all of us and said, here is my Holy Spirit for you to live. The same Spirit that's in me is in you. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit can begin to work on our lives. This is one of the things he does. He begins to change our heart, but he can because it's protected by Christ based on the truths of Scripture. And when this happens, we begin the process of sanctification. I know another crazy church word. And when I say that, here's what I mean, that sanctification is the process in which we are molded into the image of Jesus Christ. It is not our job to conform our lives to Jesus Christ. It is our job to be in a place where we can allow the Holy Spirit space to work on our hearts. God is not asking us to behave better, to just say the nice things, to do the right things. What we're being asked for from the very beginning of Scripture to the end is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And in order for us to do this, we need perfection for the Holy Spirit to begin to root out stuff, and that comes from Christ, not us. But we have to strap that on. Otherwise, we spend time carrying a weight we cannot carry. Does that make sense? I fear that too many of us have been spending all our time and our motivation comes it just comes from trying to do the right things and you're tired of doing the right things and not seeing any change in your life you're tired of sitting here saying like you know what I, I've, I've performed I've danced I've, I've jumped through your hoops I've learned all the steps but nothing is changing and I'm frustrated what the Holy Spirit is saying is, I've not asked you to jump through these hoops. I've not asked you to do any of these things. All I've asked is for access to your heart, and you've rejected me because you think you could do this. We have set ourselves up to fail. And I'm just going to say it that I believe we have set others up to fail. There are always more layers to our soul for the Holy Spirit to begin to work in. Our mind, our conscience, our emotions, all of this, our will. He begins to work in those areas to conform them to Christ. We just have to give him the space to do that. And that means it's time to stop being perfect. Probably not what you expected to hear at church on Sunday or Wednesday night when you're watching. Stop trying to be perfect. You can't, and neither can I. But what we can do, strap on the breastplate of righteousness. Look like Jesus, not because we've done something, but because he's done everything. And let the uncomfortable process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to change who we are from the inside out, because when we become more like Christ on the inside. We become more like Christ on the outside. Let's not start with the outside. Let's ask God to invade our hearts, not our behavior. And so my one question, I have two questions to close with today. And the first one is this. If you're here today 
And you're thinking, Jimmy, I know nothing but. I know nothing but these lies that you've mentioned. I constantly feel alone. I constantly feel like I have to dance and perform for everybody else. I constantly feel less than. I have no idea what it means to be loved by God. This morning, I, I, I want to ask you, what has kept you from placing your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved you so much that he gave his life for you so that you would not have to perform, but you could strap on a breastplate of righteousness that you don't deserve, which is the very definition of the grace that he's given to us. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your trust in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning, this evening, if you're watching on Wednesday. If this is where you are, would you just um, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for being righteous, for being perfect. Would you forgive my sin? Would you cleanse me from my unrighteousness? I place my trust in you. I put my hope in you. Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit and allow him to shape my heart to look like yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, if you've prayed that prayer with us this morning, would you do me a favor and just let someone know today? It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, someone. Just you need to let someone know because walking and battling through the Christian life and following Christ is best in community. The second question I have is simply for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, and that's this. If you compared yourself now to the 2020 of you and the 2020, or the 2020 you and the you now, do you look more like Jesus? If you've trusted Jesus, one of the best ways to figure out if we're wearing his righteousness or ours is do we look more like him? Because we can't perform that, we can't behave that, and we can't make that happen. The real change in our life can only come from being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I know the last season has been hard, and many of us have closed our selves off to the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're like, I'm just, I don't have time for this stuff right now. There's no more dangerous place to be as followers of Christ because our hearts and our minds, our consciences, our wills become seared, and we fall out of rhythm with Jesus. And so, do you look more like Jesus now than you did? At Crossbridge, we say we only want one step because one step, one step at a time allows us to go after Jesus together and look more like him. And, and here's what's kind of crazy. 
most of the time we don't see if our lives look more like Jesus in the moment. You may be like, I have no idea if I look more like Jesus. Like, I, I can't grow a beard. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't wear a robe. I don't have to gird my loins. That's weird. Like, I don't look like him. You know when you'll know if you look more like Jesus? When crisis hits. Are you more patient? Kind? Understanding? Are you slower to go to the bottle, to the computer, to that habit? If the answer is yes, the Holy Spirit's been at work in your life and you're becoming more like Christ. Will you be perfect? You don't have to be because he is. And so if you're here this morning and you have not been in a place where you've submitted to the Holy Spirit to work on your heart, I want to invite you to pray with me. I want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to change who you are from the inside out, as messy as that is. Would you pray with me as Chris comes to lead us in communion today? Holy Spirit, would you fill me? I confess to you, I've been trying to do this on my own. I am frustrated and tired. And the 70 pounds of armor on my shoulders is too much to bear. Holy Spirit, would you light a fire in my soul to work on my core of spiritual truths, to align my soul with the life of Jesus. And when I overstep and try to perform for others or for you, would you bring me back to the center of Christ's love for me, that I would become more like Christ for the sake of others, that they would know the hope that I need and I once had. Holy Spirit, would you fill us as a church? Allow us not to fall into the trap of religiosity, of perfection, of performing, of thinking we have to give the right answers or even the answers anyone wants to hear, but would this be a church where we strap on the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not ours, that is yours, not so that people see perfection, but they see hearts being changed constantly together. Thank you for the privilege of doing this together, not alone. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with your power. In Jesus' name, a name above all names we pray. And all who follow Jesus say, amen.